Welcome back to our, this is our sixth out of eight sessions in this session on Politically Incorrect. And I hope you've been enjoying what we're doing here. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I know you're all sitting there wondering, why is Terry in the Enchanted Forest tonight? <laughs> uh, once a year, uh, Cro Crossing School is having uh, a performance in here, which is awesome. The talent is just blows me away. And uh, it's, it's not convenient to tear this down for a Wednesday. So I just want you to take yourself into the Enchanted Forest tonight. I believe it'll enhance the experience for you, okay? Let me say a prayer for us, and then we're gonna jump into our session. Lord, you are a gracious God, and we thank you for your mercies which never end, for your love which we can barely comprehend, and for your grace which overwhelms us. We, as we talk about taking your message, your love, uh, the truth into this world, I pray that we would be conduits for your grace and conduits for your love and lights that shine brightly in this world. I thank you that we are able to gather here and discuss our faith and take it to the world. I thank you for this nation where we have that freedom. I pray your blessing and I pray your guidance on our country. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tonight we have a little different, uh, I'm going to do a little introduction, but we have a little bit different class. So you're going to want to make a note of this number. It's also on your handout. If you text questions to this number during this class, then we'll try. We usually get more than we can ask, but we'll try to ask these questions. And you are definitely going to want to do that tonight because we're going to get a chance to talk to a man that you would love to get a chance to sit down with for an hour or more and just pick his brain and ask him questions. So there's your number to text your questions in during tonight. Now, in our series, we've kind of got a little habit, and we usually check in on the uh, presidential race. Now, that's one of the reasons that we do this, by the way. We're doing this now. Why are we doing this series? Well, we're doing it now because we're in the middle of a presidential race, so it, it's good timing. But our purpose is to go engage our culture, whether it's business, or media, or education, or politics, to go engage our culture for Christ and to do it in a biblically informed way. If God has an opinion about the major things that are happening in our world and we want to go express that opinion, if you will. We want to take God's truth to the issues of our day. So that's why we're doing it. So what's the context? Last week, it was angry Hillary and angry Donald this is debating Donald and debating Hillary in honor of the debate. And I just, uh, in watching some of this, some of the facial expressions just really get to me. We've been following the polls, and uh, according to the New York Times, one of the polls I give to you is the New York Times combined national polls, as of today, still sit at 45-42. 45 Hillary, 42 Donald. That really it hasn't moved yet, and we'll see what it is next week. The other stat because you can get inundated with statistics, but one I look at every now and then is Rasmussen's number on how many Americans say America is on the right track. And two weeks ago, it was 28%. Optimistically bumped up to 31 last week. It's back down to 28, so don't get excited. <laughs> Less than a third of Americans think our country's on the right track. You know what I think of when I see that? Instead of feeling pessimistic, I feel like, what an awesome opportunity for the gospel. What an awesome opportunity to speak God's truth into a world that so desperately wants to hear it. So I'll uh, let you parse the debate because believe me, there have been a ton of people trying to do it, but uh, we'll just kind of put Donald and Hillary on hold. Next week, you're going to want to see the picture next week because I told you I'd never seen a picture of Donald's hair out of place. 
I have one for you. That's what we'll do next week. In our last session, we'll do a brief review because this issue we talked about last week, we've talked about tough things every, every week, but the one last week continues to be in the news. And I want you to understand two things. First, the purpose of this is not to tie up all of the tough questions with a bow and say we all walk out of here and we know the exact right answer to everything. It is to guide us biblically to think about things because there are right and wrong answers to the issues of this world. But as we think about crime, remember last week's topic was crime, justice, and ethnic tensions in America. That's very much in the news. It appears like it will continue to be in the news. As we continue to engage our culture about this in a biblical way, I wanted to remind you of a few biblical principles that we talked about last time that I hope will let get in our heads. And the first is this. God doesn't play favorites. There's no one in the human race that God created who doesn't deserve justice or doesn't deserve respect. And at the same time, evil is not confined to any skin color, any ethnicity, any nationality. And so we take the, the truth and the reality uh, of this into God's world. The second is the biblical solution to economic and racial and ethnic divisions and any other kind of division is the unifying power of the love of Jesus Christ. There are not ultimate solutions to this in a temporal way that the love of Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, is the healing power. And all of us as Christ followers are called to shed our old self with its prejudices and its hates and its fears. Paul says in Romans that our old self was crucified and we live in newness of life with the mind of Christ. In another place, the scripture talks about as if you were taking off clothes. The Greek word is like you're literally taking off your coat. You take off the old self and cast it aside. And so as we become reborn with the mind of Christ, that's what we take to the world. And then finally, do not underestimate the power of confession and humility for ethnic and racial healing, and we the church must lead the way with humility and with just confession, just acknowledging the reality of how people feel and the reality of injustice in the world. So as you continue to think about that, as you continue to get bombarded with these issues, let's try to bring these biblical truths to bear. So that's what we talked about last time. And now I want to just remind you of our uh, topics, and these are in order. But tonight we have a special opportunity. We've been talking about Christians engaging on some of the big issues of our day, and I thought that it would be really good for us to get time with a man that I admire, that I've known a long time, who is a Christian in an elected office because sometimes we, we ask the question, first of all, should Christians be involved in politics at all? And I hope you've seen that the Bible calls us to engage our culture in every respect. But then there's also that little cynical thought as well, but can you be Christian in politics? And I thought, what better to do than to just have a discussion with this man who has served for quite some time in public service in an elected office as a strong Christian, and we get a chance to pick his brain. So if you would, help me welcome our district attorney, Mr. David Prater, to our stage tonight. It's good to have you here, David. Thank you for making time for us. Well, I need to tell you just briefly, Mr. Prater, I, I, uh, 
have known him for a long time, but here's some things I didn't know. I knew that you were a police officer in the Norman Police Department, but I did not know you were the youngest ever cadet at age 20. And so you became an officer early in the Norman Police Department, and then you went, uh, decided to go to OU and finish your degree in law enforcement administration, decided then to go to OU Law School, graduated there early, very bright, two and a half years, got out of OU Law School. Then you were an assistant DA under Bob Macy and assistant attorney general, Drew Edmondson. Then you went into private practice, if I remember right, and then elected to be our district attorney. So you have a long history in public service. You also have a long history in law enforcement. Yeah, and, and, and I, I believe that really from the day I was born, God had me on this path, and it wasn't necessarily um, the path I had chosen. Some of the twists and turns that my life has taken, but I am definitely blessed to be where I am and really don't deserve it, but very thankful. Well, my first question for you, and by the way, you guys text your questions because we want you to be able to interact here, but my first question is, there's a, a difference, I suppose, between being a police officer, being in the uh, attorney general's office, and so forth. What was it that uh, motivated you to seek elected office? Because I think that's a little different animal. Tell, tell us about that. Um, Did you just wake up one day and said, there's not enough criticism in my life? <laughs> well, if, if, if any of you in this room know uh, the wonderful story of reconciliation between Wes Lane and myself, uh, you know the, the beginning of the story, and that was uh, a pretty horrific um, dismantling of a, of a friendship that led to my firing when I was an assistant DA and Wes was the district attorney, mm -hmm. went into private practice, uh, thought I would be away from that courthouse, away from prosecution the rest of my life, even though it was my passion and my love. Mm -hmm. uh, but then people began to talk to me about, you need to run for DA, you need to, and I'm like, you're crazy. First of all, I never liked lawyers as a police officer and I ended up being a lawyer. <laughs> I, to I told you, God has a sense of humor. And then I really dislike politicians, and I look, wake up in the mirror and stare at one every morning. <laughs> so, uh, but this wasn't my plan. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I, I, after a, a, a history under Mr. Macy, and then shortly under Wes, I got fired. I find myself in private practice. Uh, I, I I call it my five years in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a growing period. I didn't look at it that way in the beginning because I looked at God and I was angry at God. I shook my fist at God and I said, I've worked very hard to do everything I thought you wanted me to do. And you let Wes fire me? Uh, and I was really upset. Um, I didn't know what in the world was going on, but I, the day I got fired, word spread through the courthouse very quickly that I had been terminated and I had 11 job offers by the end of the day blessed, right? So I'm angry at God, yet he's already taken care of me. Um, I, a, law, uh, a, a group of lawyers who were former DAs had a private practice, a general practice, and they said, we already have an office for you. When can you move in? Wow. So that started that five years in the wilderness, okay? And, 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 and I'll tell you why it was so important that Wes fired me. Um, I was... I had been in law enforcement all my life, 
had never really dealt with those with substance abuse issues and mental health issues and those that uh, found their way into the criminal justice system, I had not dealt with those from the other side of it, okay? Never been a social worker, never been a defense lawyer, never been in the ministry, you know, dealing with counseling and therapy and the like. Mm -hmm. Well, I found myself very quickly with the first couple clients I had in private practice learning a lot about that. And so over the next five years, I learned a lot about PTSD from Vietnam, that the Vietnam veterans experienced and mm -hmm. substance abuse and, and mental health issues and the like. And so I wouldn't be the DA that I am today had Westlane not fired me and God put me out there to learn and grow. Okay? That's a powerful story. It kind of parallels the Israelites. Their time in the desert was not punishment. It was shaping them. Right. But I thought it was. You know, I, did, I didn't know what I'd done. But, but anyway, so um, people get, began to, to say, listen, you know, about two or three years into my time in the wilderness, those be, people, you know, law enforcement officers, judges, and the like would, would run into me and say, listen, you really ought to think about running for DA. Things are not going exactly the way we think it ought to go in the DA's office. And I said, listen, no. I'm not going to do it. And I'd continue to pray about it and go, God, why are people coming to me? This is crazy. It is crazy, right? And I you know, talked to my wife about it. And I, I said, Tamara, you know, I keep getting this feeling that God wants me to move into this direction. And she would say, there is no way in the world you're going to do that. And I said, okay, I love you <laughs> enough to, to respect that. And we're, I'm not going to do it. Um, well, a couple days later, a week later, two weeks later, it would be a whole new group of people. And all of a sudden, I find myself sitting at the dinner table in front of my wife, and I said, Honey, I've prayed about this. I want us to pray about it because I really feel like God is moving me to run for DA. And she said, Are you crazy? And I said, I guess so. But, you know, I also feel like this is what I need to do, and God has never let me down. And uh, so how did I find myself getting into politics? Kicking and screaming and very reluctantly. I've always said, if God can change your wife's mind on something, then it must be the right way to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm blessed to have a wonderful wife and, and, a, and an incredible family who rescues, rescues me every day. Mm -hmm. But here, here's, you know, I, I'm not a politician, okay? I'm in politics, and here's the point, I think. Mm -hmm. Christians can be in politics and not be political. That's the key. Great My worldview does not have to change because I'm in politics. I mean, my party is the party of the Lamb. And when people ask me, they're like, what, what drives you? You know, you know, I'm like, I try to treat people like Jesus Christ treated people. Mm -hmm. I, I fall short every day, but that's my goal. And they're like, yeah, but you're a prosecutor. You put people in prison. And I'm like, well... That's not all I do. Mm -hmm. Those that we have to put in prison, we do. But we can also show compassion and love and find people in their, on their worst days of their life, at the worst point in their lives, and we can treat them appropriately and love on them. And you can change lives. Mm -hmm. So, sure, do we put people in prison? That is, that is part of what we do when we have to do that. But I try to view my job um, as... You know, trying to spread the love of Jesus Christ through the courthouse to some pretty unlovable people sometime. And back at me, frankly, what because a, I'm pretty unlovable as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important thing we've been talking about, too, is instead of having the R, or in your case, the D behind your name, you don't identify so much with the party as you do as a Christ follower. 
Well, I know this is a little bit of a detour, but I'll bet there are a lot of people that don't know the end of that story, and it's worth just briefly telling us the story with West Lane. So here are two Christian men, and Christians don't always agree, and so there's a, a, a some kind of disagreement or things happen there, and there's some you know bad feelings about that, and you went off your way. But that story, God brought that story full circle, and I think it might be good just to hear the end of that. Right. Well, um I'll tell you what, those of you who are around probably remember it was a very nasty campaign, and I, t I own that. And, uh, and, and it was nasty, and, and, and part of, I'll tell you, God used me, part of me, to really, to really motivate me to run, because I still was reluctant to run, but I'll tell you what pushed me over the edge, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but it's the truth, vengeance. He took my job, I was going to take his head off. And much like my namesake, I was going to pull my sword and wipe him out. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the truth. And so it was a very nasty campaign. I went after him with everything that I had. Uh, Wes came back at me pretty, pretty heavily as well. He responded in kind. And uh, by the end, we had been friends. And then when he was appointed and fired me, things fell apart very quickly and we could get to all what went behind the firing and the like. Uh, we could do that, but uh, anyway, uh, there was a reason for him doing it, and, he, he'd, and uh, he'd been told some things that weren't true, but mm -hmm. anyway, so get elected, and uh, um, I walk in during the transition period, and a meeting, uh, meeting with, with Wes's first assistant, uh, to work through the transition and, and figure out how we're going to do that. And I walk into the front office, and you would turn left to go to his first assistant's office, and to the right was Wes's office. And I walked in and turned to the, to the left, but as I did, I looked back over my shoulder into Wes's office, and I saw him sitting at his desk like this. And I thought, well, David, are you happy now? You just, you hurt, you know, and I still loved Wes. I, I couldn't admit it because the hurt was still there. But I knew at that point that I'd done something horrible. And that was even before I'd been sworn in. But over the next couple months, I mean, Wes and I had had lunch a couple times to try to, you know, me get my feet underneath me and figure out how we move the office forward and the like. And over the next year and a half to two years, we had opportunities to talk to each other about things that were going on and at funerals and the like, unfortunately. And then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, that love was reignited I guess the flame was turned up because the love I had for Wes was never gone, and I realized that. I, it was just in a bunch of old crusty hate and hurt mm -hmm. is what it was. And, um, and, and, and we reconciled, and he said, David, I, I just want to say this to you. I know now that the information that I had that led me to firing you was wrong, and I need to apologize to you for destroying your career. And I said, Wes you're forgiven, but you understand that I would not be on this path now had you not fired me, and that I wouldn't have learned the things that I learned out in private practice had you not fired me, and God used you as my change agent mm -hmm. and caused me to do something that I never would have done. And I said, and I need, I need to ask for your forgiveness as well, because the way I went about defeating you was not Christ-like and not the way I should have done it, not the way I, I'd been raised to live, and not the way I knew I should have done it. And he forgave me, and uh, he said, well, then I need to thank you because 
you're my change agent, and I would have never started SALT had not you defeated me. Mm -hmm. So God used you as my change agent and got me out of a position I should have never been in. And, and so uh, it's, it's an incredible story that only God could be the author of, frankly. You know, it's, it's, no one would believe it if they read it in a book. They'd, uh -huh. You know, that's a fiction book and throw it against the wall, but it's true. Um, so, yeah, that's the rest of the story. The, the rest of the story is that Wes Lane is one of my very favorite friends in the world now. I call him for counsel. I talk to him when I have good news, talk to him about whatever's going on, and it, it's, it's incredible. And it's, it's wonderful how God has completely turned that whole thing around and used each of us as mm -hmm. change agents for the other. That's, that's powerful because, and the reason I wanted you to hear if you didn't know the end of that story is a lot of the things that we're talking about are a world in need of healing, and it's, it's amazing to see God doing that every day. Well, I have a lot of questions for you, but I know we have some already uh, for you, Laura, and would you throw us the first question for David? Well, I have a couple questions that are uh, really about justice reform and what Oklahoma, or specifically Oklahoma County's attitude is toward rehabilitation versus lock them up or treatment, and um, if you wouldn't mind, would you also please address mental health issues with that? Sure. Uh, what I find is that mental health and substance abuse issues really are many times at the, at the core, at the genesis of a lot of problems that lead people down the path to incarceration. And a lot of those substance abuse issues and mental health issues, they have a genesis in trauma. We find that about 65% of the women who are incarcerated, and you guys know the statistics, Oklahoma incarcerates women at a higher rate per capita than any other place in the world, and we're like third in the country per capita in the incarceration of our men. Well, about 65% of the women who are incarcerated, when we survey the women, they've been physically or sexually abused as a child or physically or sexually abused as an adult. And I tell people the reason that our women, that we incarcerate women at the rate that we do is we don't treat people, we don't treat women as equals in Oklahoma. We really don't. We don't protect our, our young girls. We don't protect our young women. And, and we certainly do not provide them any services or therapy um, for the trauma that they experience. And then they begin to self-medicate. And it's a self-medication uh, and sometimes co-occurring self-medication with mental health issues that have, that have resulted from the trauma that leads them to um, uh, the criminal behavior that ultimately will lead them to prison. Uh, and men, young men, many of them are the same way. They've grown up in, in homes that were violent, uh, child abuse, they've suffered from child abuse, they've witnessed domestic abuse. Uh, they've grown up without a, a parent, maybe without both parents. Maybe if maybe those parents were involved uh, with substance abuse, they had mental health issues themselves, in gangs, whatever it may be. If you're familiar with the adverse childhood experience instrument that tests adverse childhood experience. It's a, it's a 10 question test that asks you, did you, as you grew up, did you grow up in a home uh, that, where there was chronic abuse uh, against the children? Uh, did you witness domestic abuse in your home between your parents? Was there significant alcohol issue in the home, issues in the home? Was there substance abuse issue in the home? Were there mental health issues in the home? Did one of your parents go to prison? There's 10 questions. And what you will find, there was a survey in California of those who were incarcerated in the penal system in California. 
you get a yes, you get a, a point for every yes answer to those 10 questions. The average ACE score, adverse childhood experience score, was a seven of those incarcerated in California. So what I know from experience is there are some very bad people who are incarcerated right now, and they're very mean and they will hurt other people. That's about probably a quarter who we have incarcerated right now. I believe the rest of them are people that we could have helped avoid going down that path and getting there if we did have appropriate services on the front end of their lives and address their mental health and substance abuse issues earlier on in their lives as children and as young adults and the like. Now, once we get them with five or six felony convictions, we don't have the resources. We don't have any other options at that point in Oklahoma. And as a prosecutor, we try to divert them you know, through the Remerge program and women diversion programs and the uh, veterans diversion program. We have eight, at least eight different diversion programs to try to keep people out of prison who otherwise there's no other options but they go to prison. But there are even those who are incarcerated now that we can't fit them into any of those diversion programs and so we've run out of options and that's why they're incarcerated. So as to justice reform, I am at the front of justice reform. And, and, and from the prosecutor's office, the larger, largest DA's office in Oklahoma, uh, I, I, I look across the room in court, courtrooms every day, and I realize that that person on the other side of the wall who's sitting there in orange and handcuffs is no different than I am, except they didn't grow up with Charles and Lundy Prater raising them in the wonderful Leave It to Beaver home that I did, and I even tried to screw it up from that, you know? The only reason that I'm not in prison is I didn't get caught at a younger age, and I'll tell you, that's the truth. And I realized God protected me, maybe to put me in the position I'm in now, and to realize that. Because I look across a courtroom, and I see young men and women who are no different than I am, other than they weren't given the opportunities that I had. And so I try to, mm -hmm. try to address their issues with love and understanding, and if there's a way to keep them out of prison and help them change the trajectory of their life, I try to do that. I'm sorry, that's a very long answer, but it's a complicated question. It is, and a good point. Um, let me tie that in briefly to something that we've also talked about, because you hit two things. Number one, redemption rather than retribution, where it makes sense, is a biblical idea. The other is, remember, we were talking about poverty. We talked about the Bible encompasses three real main causes of poverty. One is catastrophe, you know, tsunami or something. The second is moral failure. People do evil things, and sometimes we stop there. But the third reason is oppression, and that is oppressive circumstances and other things, and that's what you've talked about. And as Christians, we understand that you don't solve crime or poverty by targeting just one thing, that this is a little more complicated. Laura, what else? Well, as you would expect, we have a number of questions dealing with the race issues. So um, I'll give you a couple and you can take off from there. Okay. Starting with, um, why is there such a disproportionate share of people of color who are prosecuted, found guilty, and incarcerated? And what do you think is the solution for the race issues concerning police officers and African Americans that are killed by police? And I would add to that do you feel like there's a solution to the press being willing to side against law enforcement? I, I think, let me start with the last one first because I'm old and I know I'll remember that one. Um, 
I can remind you. <laughs> thank you. And, and, and I stand up. I'm sorry, I'm uncomfortable sitting down when I'm addressing an audience because I stand when I speak to a judge or a jury, so you're my jury, okay? Is that fair? Uh, more respectful that way, too. I hope you feel that way. Um, the, the, the media is bias. You know, you go down one side of the channels and it's going to be the left and the other side it's going to be the right. Don't ever, please, please, don't ever take uh, what you see, especially in electronic media, uh, on TV, as the truth. Because I'll tell you, it is not the whole truth. And there is a slant, there's a bias, no matter which side it's on, there's a slant or a bias. So uh, I'll say not just against the police, but sometimes in favor of the police, where the police don't deserve that credit. Because the police do occasionally do things wrong. And we need to, and we need to say, hey, listen, this was not done well. Um, so there's, there's slants and there's biases both ways. Look, if the reason that I think there are a disproportionate number of minorities, specifically African Americans, incarcerated in our prison system, um, and don't throw stones until I complete my answer, is that we find that there is a disproportionate number of crimes committed by African Americans in our community. Don't take that, meaning that they are inherently evil, they are inherently violent, there's anything inherently wrong with anyone uh, of color or anyone who's Caucasian. When you look at the neighborhoods, there are five, there are five zip codes in Oklahoma City that are driving the population, the prison population in Oklahoma. And what you see in those zip codes, poor education, lower functioning schools, you see uh, broken families, the nuclear family is broke down in those neighborhoods, you see increased violence, increased uh, gang activity many times, uh, and I'm not just talking about African American children, I'm talking about gangs of, of all colors, um, and you see poverty. I said the P word because it's big. Poverty has a huge effect on everything and the trajectory of life for a lot of these children because they don't have opportunities that children in other neighborhoods might. And again, their schools aren't as good in those areas. Uh, they lose hope. And so therefore, you have a, an environment that is ripe for creating precious young children who are precious when they're born and continue to be precious, but they become involved in activities because that's what's going on in their zip code. That's what's going on in their neighborhoods. And we see a disproportionate number of African Americans in those neighborhoods. So, if you wanna know why we see more African Americans in prison, it's because historically, more African Americans are living in poverty, more African Americans are living in areas that have poor education uh, opportunities, lack of hope, lack of, uh, of, a, of a nuclear family, and again, generational incarceration issues. We know that a child of a, of an, a person who's been incarcerated is seven times more likely to be incarcerated themselves. So, until someone intervenes in that, 
that cycle continues and it actually gets worse. Second question, I, I answered one and three, I think. Well, the second one uh, just had to do with the current situation with police and... Yeah. Relationships, that's the answer. It's, I tell you what, you know why things have not, listen, the same racial issues that are occurring all across the country occur here. African Americans, Native Americans, uh, Asian Americans, um, Middle Eastern Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans, they are experiencing the same issues here as they, as they experience all across the country. All right, we have a lot to work on here in this city. But here's why it haven't, hasn't blown up. Here's why we don't see our buildings burning. Here's why we don't have rioting in the street. It's because of relationships. For decades and decades, law enforcement, clergy, community leaders and the like have had relationships with one another. Oklahoma City's a big, small town, right? We're pretty friendly with one another, even though we may be different from one another and look different from one another. And, and so relationships were forged decades ago. We are, are enjoying the benefits of those relationships that were forged many decades ago because where things might have blown up, like after the Holstclaw trial or other shootings that may have made the news that you're aware of in the Oklahoma City area, because of those relationships and trust that's been built, we've been able to talk. And so it's because of those relationships that Oklahoma City is not burning, that our buildings are still standing, that we don't see rioting in the street, we don't see five police officers murdered during those riots. I mean, the things that other cities that are, are experiencing around the country, our, 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 our minority community, um, are, they're experiencing the same thing. But our people are different. I'm not saying we're better than the rest of the country, but I will tell you, those throughout, and I don't care what color your skin is, people in this city are special. God has blessed us, and I, I know we're not supposed to be prideful. I'm trying not to be prideful in a bad way, but I am proud of this city because we are different. You are different. Our relationships are different. And that's why it's happened, because we have relationships with one another, even though we look different from one another, we, we come from different backgrounds and the like. So uh, I tell you, Chief City is one of my very favorite people in the world, and he attends this church, thank God, right? We have a Christian chief of police, wow. Uh, well, he has a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview in the way he addresses his job as well. And he leads from the top, and he shows his troops from cadet on up how he expects them to treat everyone, everyone. That's why. Powerful. Let me interject a question here to jump off on that because one of the things I wanted to mention is uh, if you've been reading commentators, many Christian commentators uh, kind of sadly lament that neither one of our major presidential candidates, both of whom identify themselves as Christians, uh, they don't feel that they're modeling that very well. Uh, that's an understatement. But uh, from the commentators, I make no judgment on them. But I wanted to ask you this question. Are there, because you are in a visible position as a Christian, are there things that you don't do 
because of your Christian witness, or are there any things you make a point to do to affect your Christian witness uh, in, as an elected official? Are there any couple of things specifically you do, or I don't do that because of my witness? I'm not perfect, so I do things sometimes that I'm not proud of, even in the public square. Of course. Um, here's the things I do to try to stay on track. I pray constantly throughout the day. Mm -hmm. I wake up in the morning and I sit in my bathroom floor with my cup of coffee for about 30 minutes and I pray. I get up and I'm driving to work and I pray. When I'm faced with something at work, I pray. I'm like, God, you got this. This is too big for me. You've got to handle it. You've put me here for a reason. I'm your, I'm your, I'm your hands and your feet, okay? So. You tell me where these hands and feet are supposed to go, and if you want this mouth to say something, you need to direct it in the words that are supposed to come out of this mouth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I tell you, a lot of times uh, when I'm speaking to a group, and it may be a rough crowd or not a rough crowd, you know, friendly or not, here's my prayer when I get up. You use the words that come out of my mouth for your purpose, to further your purpose. And even though the right words may not come out of my mouth, as they go into the ears of those you need to hear those words, let them hear your message. And so, you know, I mean, how do I go wrong if, if you know, mm -hmm. if, if, if I ask God to do that? I mean, he's just got this goofy looking guy up there do, doing whatever, and he's controlling the message. Whatever's coming out of my mouth and whatever you're hearing, it's the right thing because God's controlling it. Uh, I, I, try to, I try to be an example. Uh, I'm, I'm not always a good one. I've got a horrible temper that I have to try to control, and sometimes I do it okay, and sometimes I don't. Uh, and I pray about that a lot. Um, but I, I try to talk about Jesus Christ as much as I can. There was a Chamber of Commerce uh, lunch a while back on justice reform, and uh, Clay Bennett, the last question was, well, you know, he asked all of the panelists, you know, you know what do you think the, the one thing is that you believe we should do in this city to... Uh, to, to, uh, to, to affect um, uh, our prison population and to, to affect how we uh, deal with, with those who have uh, been involved in the criminal justice system or are violating our criminal laws. And four pe three people in front of me answered the question. I was the last one. I said, well, listen, um, I think if we treated all everyone more like Jesus Christ taught us to treat everyone, we wouldn't even be here. And it got quiet for just a second. And then all of a sudden, everybody started, and started clapping. And you know, and Clay looked around and he's like, what the heck? People are hungry for that. And, and, and so, listen, God sometimes just treats me like a puppet. I'm too stupid to do anything well, okay? And he just kind of sticks his hand in my back and he does this stuff occasionally. If I'm doing dumb, dumb stuff, that's not him, that's me. But the things that come out of my mouth that, that, that sound wise and, and are the right direction, it's because God's directing that. And so I constantly get this tug when people will ask me a question in the public forum and it's saying, go ahead, let's see if you got the guts to say it. And I talk mm -hmm. about Jesus. In the Capitol, at the Chamber of Commerce meetings, wherever. Mm -hmm. And so listen, if, if my heavenly Father created the universe, what are you going to do to me if I talk about Jesus Christ in a, in a, you know, in a business setting? Who cares? 
That's great. So that, that's what I try to do. Mm -hmm. I don't always do it well, yeah. but, but I'm always focused on a way to interject Jesus or my faith or the way I believe we should treat each other into whatever the issue is. That's powerful. Laura, do you have another question for us? We are beginning to hear a lot on the news about the opioid addiction epidemic in the country. What does that look like in Oklahoma? It's horrible. Um, it's, it's as bad here as it is anywhere else. We've got uh, overdoses occurring constantly. Many, many of those overdoses result in death. Um, you know, uh, the op opioid addiction, and, and I don't care who I offend, I'm gonna speak the truth to you. And that's, that's another thing that I do. I speak truth to power. Mm -hmm. and, and, and whether I'm speaking to Governor Fallon or, or, or Clay Bennett or whomever, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. And if the, if the emperor has no clothes, I'm going to say, you don't have any clothes. You're way off base on this. And every time I'm protected, when I feel moved to, to say something that I believe is the truth and someone who could take my head off is standing there in front of me, I just I think, so I'm going to tell you the truth. The pharmaceutical companies have created the opio opioid crisis by about a decade ago, 15 years ago or something like that, when there was this magical drug called Oxycontin that was supposed to be not as addictive as other painkillers, and they began to, to encourage physicians through incentives to prescribe more and more and more and more and more of these pills, these magical pills. Well, what they didn't tell anyone is they were as addictive or more addictive than the other painkillers that were out there. Well, OxyContin and other opioid-type um, painkillers are really all derivatives or synthetic heroin, synthetic opioids, synthetic opiates, okay? And so you get the same type high from heroin, from fentanyl, and a lot of the other illicit drugs. And so when people crack down on the ability to get the prescription pills, like we have recently, people will turn to heroin and fentanyl and, and, and very dangerous drugs. Um, we're in trouble in Oklahoma. We're in trouble all throughout this country because China is at war with us and they don't even have to fire a shot. China is importing fentanyl powder that they produce in China and they are um, importing it in, they're smuggling it into uh, the United States, and uh, drug dealers are mixing it with heroin. Fentanyl is a hundred times more powerful, more potent than heroin, and will kill you just like that if your body is not prepared to take that fentanyl dose in. Um, there are, are people who are taking that fentanyl powder and they are pressing it into tablets that will look like a Vicodin, that will look like an Oxycontin, that will look like a Xanax bar and people think that they're buying a Xanax bar on the street and they eat fentanyl, we call it the one-hit kill. And, and recently, um, it was in Oklahoma City, but over into Canadian County, almost into Yukon, you saw, uh, I think it was in April or May, uh, where one Saturday morning the fire department responded on a medical call to a home where three people were dead and one person was in really bad shape and he went to the hospital, somehow he lived, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, you know, there must be some noxious gas or some poisonous gas that has been, you know, has, has uh, been secreted in that home or something or whatever. 
Well, what wasn't so well publicized, those were fentanyl overdoses. Those were fentanyl overdoses. Someone had eaten a Xanax bar that wasn't a real Xanax bar. It was fentanyl. And three people died because they ate a Xanax bar, what they thought was a Xanax bar that they had purchased from a street dealer. Uh, our op I tell you, um, you're a very powerful group, not just because of your numbers, but because of your status and your, you know, your ability to, to research things and your opportunity to contact those at the legislature. I will encourage you, no matter what, the legislature wants to monkey around the, with this coming legislative session. I don't have a lot of respect for our legislature. I'm sorry. Some individuals are wonderful people, but as a body, they're the most messed up group of monkeys you'd ever want to see. What do you really think about that? Talk about politics. Nothing gets done in the Capitol because of politics, and no one wants to do the right thing for the right reason. But I will encourage you to get a hold of your legislators and say, listen, we want more money driven to substance abuse, mental health treatment programs, and services provided to families and young children. Uh, because if we really want to address the incarceration issue in our state, we've got to start way back here when these children are very, very, very young and take care of our kiddos. Powerful. Thank you. Laura, give us one more, and then I've got a lightning round questions for David. Okay. Well, I have several questions, and no, I think you have... basically just answered um, a number of them, which is, what's the cure, or how do we deal appropriately with mental illness for incarcerated people with the lack of fathers in our poorest community? And... Um, and the other, the drug issues. And I think you, you just answered a number of our questions. Do you have anything else you want to say about that? Well, <clears throat> first of all, I find a lot of people um, always doing this and saying, you know, I really think I have a purpose in life. I'm not sure exactly what it is. And they're looking out somewhere far on the horizon. And all the while, there's this child tugging on their leg with a mm -hmm. basketball in their hand or a football in their hand. Well, what in the world could my purpose possibly be? I know God had put me here for a reason. Daddy, you want to play basketball? Daddy, will you kick the football with me? Daddy, we don't look down first and take care of our own babies. I believe that the key to every issue we're dealing with right now starts right here. Mm -hmm. Love your children. Love your children's friends. Love your children's schoolmate. Find a child who is not being loved on and love on that baby. There is nothing more you could do, nothing better you could do to affect a positive change in this crazy world than to kneel down and love on a child. It will ripple out forever. Like a boulder in the ocean, those waves are going to hit shores far beyond where you'll ever live because you touched one child and that child's child and that child's child and that child's child. Mm -hmm. So I believe the key and I believe why God put me here on this earth is to talk to you about loving children and to love on babies and to take care of babies. Um, and to take care of the adult that may be sitting across from you that's not so lovable, 
and realize that, that there's a child inside of him that may be that broken child. There's a reason that we're all like we are. And you can go into prison and you're going to find a lot of people who are very lovable people if you look inside them and realize that really what they are is an adult with a broken child inside of them. Almost without exception, that's what you find. Amen, that's powerful. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to go into this because one of the signs of maturity is realizing there are not simple answers to complex questions. And the Bible encompasses that. There's not just a knee-jerk, rush-to-judgment kind of an answer. There's a lot of compassion there and a lot of realism. And I like the way you blend those two. That's a very biblical way to approach it. Well, I had some questions that I was just really curious about. Uh, first of all, are there any particular Bible verses or principles that just especially guide you, that you find yourself coming back to? Oh, let's see. I think Paul in Romans, maybe 12, and you're the biblical scholar, not, not me, but you know, where he talks about using your talents in the way that God gave them to you. I, I believe that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I go back to the fact that God created all of us uniquely, and we are all positioned exactly where he wants us to be and where he wants us to grow. And so I, I continue to go back to that. And, I, and, I, and so when people are like, well, aren't you going to run for another office? Aren't you going to run for governor or whatever? I'm like, why in the world would I want to do that? God's got me planted right where he wants me here. I can affect more positive change from here than I could ever in any mm-hmm. other political office. And remember, I'm not a politician, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so um, I, I just continue to go back to trying to always stay focused on every moment as I walk in wherever I am, why did God put me in this room right now with these people? Who is it that needs me? Who is it that needs to hear about Jesus? Who needs, who mm-hmm. needs to know that someone cares about him and loves him? Mm-hmm. So um, the biblical principle, again, I think is very simplistic. I, I'm, I'm very childlike in this way. I just try to, I, you know, and I don't always do it, that caveat, but I always try to, mm-hmm. I, I think, what would Jesus do in this situation? Mm-hmm. Who would he be loving on? Who would he walk over and touch and just say, hey, someone loves you. And it may be someone in orange and handcuffs. And when the DA goes over and talks to them, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty powerful. And my position's powerful, but I'm not. I mean, I, I don't mean it in that way. I know way, exactly you know? what you mean. I mean, they freak out. <laughs> I'm sure. I've never had anyone tell me they love me. A little bit. I don't know if you you probably do realize this, but it is really unusual to hear a district attorney whose job is to put the bad guys in jail talk like that and approach that way. And I think that's a transformative. That's God using you to transform the way people think about that. I want to change the paradigm. I want to redefine what a DA really is all about. Not about putting people in prison. It's about seeking justice for everyone. Yes. Very elusive, what justice is, mm-hmm. and I know you've talked about that. But if I'm focused on seeking justice, you know, I'm focused on treating everyone uh, appropriately, fairly, uh, and hopefully not incarcerating them. Right. You know, bringing God's. We talked in our justice last week about bringing agents to think God's justice to an imperfect society in a broken world. You know, you touched on something I thought about a lot when I was a. Business executive, the question I would say to myself every day is, what would Jesus look like if he were, uh, you know, a sales executive at AT AT&T? And you're, I hear the same thing. What would Jesus look like if he were 
a district attorney? And you know, that question could be answered by everybody in here. What would Jesus look like if he had my profession? What a healthy way to look at what we do. Well, he might have gray hair and not very much of it. (laughs) (laughs) But he'd certainly be better looking than I am. (laughs) Okay, here's a really hard question. Would you recommend to other Christians to run for elected office? Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. Christians need to be the example, okay? Too often we're running around following other people around. We need to take the lead, all right? What happens when Christians show up? Look at the clapping circles that, you know, in, in England uh, and, and how they, they did away with slavery and the child abuse and the animal abuse and everything. Why did that happen? The Christians showed up. So the Christians need to show up in public office. The Christians need to show up in the legislature. The Christians need to show up like James Lankford in Congress. Okay? I, I, I can't wait till we truly have another Christian president. Mm-hmm. Um, no, don't mean to cast aspersions at Mrs. Clinton or Mr. Trump. Maybe not. <laughs> but... But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think, I think, listen, God didn't put us here to be comfortable, okay? And you may go, well, I would never be comfortable for running for office. Who cares? If you, feel, if you feel drawn to do that, if you feel like you have something to offer your city council, your school board, your legislature, Congress, wherever it may be, run, run, run. I think that's why you may be here. If you think it is, maybe there's a reason you think that. And be courageous enough to run. Because, it, because if it's the right thing to do, you will succeed. If God does not want you to end up in that office, you have been moved to run for another reason that you may learn along that path on that race. Mm-hmm. Always be looking straight down the highway and on the exit ramps as well, because God has put you on that path for some reason. It may not be to get to wherever straight down the road. It may be you're going to take a couple turns and a couple detours. So, um, boy, mm. my answer's a so long. You I'm would. sorry. No, that's, uh, this is great. No, no. Well, final question. Uh, and I think everybody in this room probably will join me in asking this question. I mean it in all sincerity. What can we as Christ followers do to support Christ followers? who are in public office, what can we most, because we don't always know, how do we support your ministry in public office? What can we do that would be most effective? Pray. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your, those in public office. Um, and uh, encourage. Uh, and also, I will, I made, not as much as praying, um, you as constituents, you as though, though of those, as those who I serve, um, be less political, be less partisan. Okay, I have a D behind my name on the ballot. It doesn't mean that I'm a Democrat. It means I had to register as a Democrat or a Republican when I ran against West Lane. Again, I am of the party of the Lamb not a Democrat or Republican. So please look at those who are running for office as 
um, something other than a partisan animal or a political animal because those who are running for office are they're feeding off of you and if they think that you are political or partisan in some way that's the message you're going to hear back so when people knock on your doors Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, I'm David Prater. I'm running for district attorney in Oklahoma County. I want to talk to you about the things that are concerning you. Well, Mr. Prater, the things that are concerning me is I don't see enough Christ-like uh, elected officials, people who really do follow the example of Jesus Christ uh, in, in, your, in your profession. What are you going to do about that? Well, I've got an answer. Will the next person? I mean, talk to them about it. Talk to them about their faith. What is it? What is their biblical, what is their worldview? Is it a partisan or a political worldview? You know, just ask them, hey, tell me what's your worldview? What drives you every day? If they start talking about politics and about, you know, doing this, that, or the other, and they don't mention Jesus Christ, or they don't mention God or a faith, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go, thanks for knocking on my door, but uh, I'm not real sure I'm going to be voting for you. By the way, do you even know who Jesus Christ is? Can I talk to you about him? <laughs> awesome. That is powerful. Well, let me uh, close our session by taking uh, David Prater's advice, and let's pray for him and for our other officials. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this evening where we get to just peel out back the heart, if you will, of one of your servants and and ask the questions that we wonder about, the things that frustrate us. And I pray tonight that you have spoken through him to us. I pray that you've ignited our faith, that you have helped us to realize that your truth is in desperate need in this world and we can all be agents of change in this world. That you have given us a mission and I pray that we would go be boldly about it as David speaks and, and as boldly about it in his work. I also pray for him. I pray for his family. I pray for protection for them from the forces of the enemy, for evil that would like to, to attack him. I pray you would protect him. I pray the same for all of our public servants in whatever role. I pray, Father, that you would embolden us to speak our faith lovingly to a world that is hurting and desperately needs it. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, help me thank David for being here tonight. Well, next week we continue our series. We'll have a softball topic. We're going to talk about gender, sexuality, marriage, and family. And so I'll see you next week. Thank you, guys.